I moved here from Colombia with my little violin, a suitcase full of teddy bears and my suitcase of clothing. Welcome to another episode of Backstage Chats with Women in Music. I'm your host, Thea Wood. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to a classically trained violinist who earned her master's in music from the Juilliard School and was concertmaster of the Riano Ito Chamber Orchestra when they debuted at Carnegie Hall. She's a masterclass music teacher and has collaborated with acts ranging from jazz to folk to rock, including the all-female mariachi band called Flor de Taluache. Her current focus is on her duo act with husband Jesse Elder called One and Two, and their debut album Creature Ventures is an experiment of meshing visual arts and sound. Please welcome our favorite Colombian fiddler on El Tejado, Blanca Cecilia Gonzalez. Welcome to the show. Hi, Thea. Thank you so much for hosting me. Oh, you're so welcome. It's great to have you on board and you are our first violinist as a guest. Yay! I think you're <laughs> our first classical uh, musician. Uh-huh. We have people who were trained in classical, but now play more pop or rock or funk and that kind of thing. But you took it all the way to, to the career level. I have. Um, but at the same time, I do all sorts of other um, explorations in music. I, I have a lot of different tastes and love for different genres. And uh, with the classical training, I'm able to jump into different genres and adapt. We are definitely going to explore a lot of that later on in our um, interview because I am very curious about a lot of the collaborations that you've had throughout the years. Uh, what we do want to start off with, shakedown questions. And the shakedown is a group of questions that we ask all of our special guests. Are you ready for the shakedown? Totally. Who was your first concert? Okay. When I read this and I saw this for the first time, I was like, huh, I don't remember. So I grew up um, in Colombia and uh, I started violin at four years old. I have an older brother who's six years older than me and he was playing violin. And so my mom was taking me to the conservatory where he was studying. I was just a little baby at her hip and always just joining in every lesson. And at this conservatory, there were concerts um, pretty much every Friday And so since I'm a baby, I've been going to classical music concerts as well as Colombian or Latin American folk music concerts. So growing up, it was every Friday and every Saturday we would go to a concert. Now, the first concert that I remember that I decided to go to on my own was probably when I was in high school uh, and it was like already living in New York City. There's this man uh, called Manu Chao, who's from Spain. I love Manichal. He's amazing. He's so much fun. And he had a concert at the Central Park Summer Stage Series, which was just open to the public. You know, I'm like 14, 15 years old and like just excited to go with my friends, you know, something totally wild with people everywhere. And that was, I think, the first concert that I was just like on my own with my friends. What was the first album you bought with your own money? There were two and they were cassettes and one was Shakira because she's also from Colombia. It was before she became very well known and she used to do kind of like indie rock. And then Spice Girls was the other cassette. (laughs) (laughs) The girl band. (laughs) Yes. Yes. All about the girl power. Which artist or band is in heavy rotation on your playlist? Natalia Laforcade, who is a Mexican uh, singer songwriter. There's one particular album that she has 
collaborated with a lot of just heavy hitters mm -hmm. and it's all playing homage to Latin culture. Her tone of voice and the musicality and, you know, hearing traditional songs totally reinterpreted. Which woman has had the most influence on your career? The first one that I can answer honestly is my mom, because she's just been so supportive from the get-go. And when I was little, she would join me on all my classes and sing and play and make, make it all a big game and fun, where practicing and, you know, just playing violin never became, you know, a struggle. Or it was always with love, thanks to her. Um, and then when I grew up and I got to move to New York City with my family, I found a teacher, my first violin teacher, uh, who's a, a man from Israel, I think, and Russia. He's all mixed. <laughs> But his wife, they are a duo um, that teach together. And his wife, Sophie Arbuckle, incredible musician, has always just been very motherly and very loving and very supportive. Finally, in my you know late 20s, I was lucky enough to meet this woman um, through my husband. She's an older pianist. She's probably like in her late 80s, I think if not 90. And she's just a lover of music, all styles of music. And she's just been sharing uh, all her knowledge and support with my husband and I. So Vera Tishev is her name. Next question. If you could have dinner with any woman dead or alive, who would it be? Nina Simone. <gasps> I love her. I love her music. I love her story. It's a heavy story, like a lot of people, a lot of um, artists and performers. Something I love about her that I can connect with is that she trained classically and then went off to do her own thing and, you know, changed the world in so many ways. She went to Juilliard, as I did, and I think she was one of the first Black females to attend Juilliard, which is a, you know, that's a really big deal. Yeah. And so I, I'm very inspired by where she came from, what she did, and just all the different music that she put out there and what she did socially. What is one life goal you'd like to accomplish before climbing that golden stairway to heaven? <sighs> so my whole life has been about making music. So I started very little. Uh, I was four. And I think since I realized I loved and consciously, like totally aware that I love making music, My goal has been to just share as much music as I can, whether it is performing for people or now as I'm getting older and I have children, whether it is sharing music with families and their children. I think I'm on route to doing, to fulfilling my goal, which is just sharing, sharing, sharing and connecting musically. <laughs> Let's take a short break and we'll get right back. Never miss an episode of Backstage Chats with Women in Music. Sign up for our Spotlight newsletter and get updates on new episodes, virtual and in-person events, and much more. Signing up is easy. Grab your phone, visit backstagechats.com, and click the newsletter link. And don't worry, we respect your privacy and your inbox. Sign up today and see who's in the spotlight. And we're back with Blanca Cecilia Gonzalez. So we, we just finished the shakedown questions and we did learn a little bit about Blanca's background uh, during the shakedown, which is that she was born in Colombia. How old were you when your family moved 
to the United States? I was 11 years old. I had just turned 11 years old. I believe I started like sixth grade. Yeah, I was not itty bitty, but I was itty. You were itty. <laughs> yeah. Did, where Did you know English when you came over? Not, not really. I mean, like I knew yellow and green from learning English in, in the school that I was in in Colombia, but I could not hold a conversation or understand anything people were saying. That must have been pretty hard. <laughs> it was crazy. I remember my first couple of report cards, I everything was fail, you know? <laughs> oh no, <laughs> everything that's terrible. Failed. And I remember one homework where it was like, okay, read this chapter and write a summary on it. And I had no idea what summary was. And I read the whole chapter and I didn't do anything about it. <laughs> and and that's pretty much how I my schooling started in the States. <laughs> Did that affect how you approached school? I mean, were you not a fan of school or did you grow to love it? Or how did that kind of work for you? I moved here for middle school. And in middle school, I just assimilating the culture and the, it's a, you know, the American lifestyle, which is like just big school and lots of kids and all sorts of different backgrounds in the public school, which was totally different from Colombia. That was overwhelming, but because I was still so little, like 11, I, I learned pretty quickly. And I mm -hmm. think it took me about a month to feel comfortable and confident to speak in English with people. So wow. that's pretty fast. Like, I mean, that's that just four fast. weeks and like, you just kind of pick it up really quickly. I also moved first by myself and lived with my aunt and uncle because my family, my brother and my parents were in Colombia. They were selling everything that we had there. They were closing the chapter on our life there, mm -hmm. but they let me come earlier so that I could start school in time and assimilate as best as I could. Now, you had been playing violin since you were four. Uh, when you arrived in the United States and went to school, did you... Uh, did they sign you up immediately in one of the music classes? My, so my aunt was uh, extremely supportive. My whole family has been super supportive of my musical journey. They put me right away in the, they asked for me to be put into the orchestra. I moved here from Colombia with my little violin, a suitcase full of teddy bears and my suitcase of clothing. Um, and, so, <laughs> and so I had uh, my violin has always been with me. Were the kids in the orchestra class some of the first ones that you made friends with? Yeah, and I still am friends with one of them um, who was also a Spanish speaker, uh, but she, she was born here and she kind of helped me with like communicating with people. She didn't continue playing music at all. Most of the kids that I, that, you know, in this country, I think starts um, music a little later like mm -hmm. when they're in elementary school, later elementary school or middle school. So I was a little bit in a different level, I guess, yes. um, because I had started going to like, you know, conservatory when I was four. I mean, a lot of friends through music, basically that's been the constant. I believe that you use the Suzuki method. Is that right? Uh, that's right. We had another guest, Holly Bowling, who said that she also, she learned piano using the Suzuki method. And I'm just curious, can you explain for us what the Suzuki method is? As best as I can, I will try. Okay. <laughs> the teacher I had married Suzuki with his own methods, you know, and his own techniques. But from what I understand of Suzuki is you learn music and an instrument by singing and listening. And you, at the same time, learn to read music. So you follow the shape of the notes. There's books of different levels and you start with 
you know, very simple melodies and very simple themes of songs. And so you're listening, you're singing, and at the same time, you're trying to read it. And then the teacher, um, who is just like a master <laughs> and a magician, gets little hands to move their fingers following what they're singing and what they're seeing. That was my experience of Suzuki. So it was kind of like a combination of the visual with you actually producing the audio yeah. and then feeling it while you're playing. Exactly. So it's kind of combining all the senses and the learning. Yeah, totally. Training. Auditory, visual, and the sense and the sensual. Is that part of the sensual? That's yeah. right. Okay. So now I get that. And and then of course that that helped you moving forward and getting your bachelor of music degree from Aaron Copland School of Music at Queens College, and then your master's of music at Juilliard. Then you became a concert master as a result of all these experiences. I would love for you to explain because a lot of people aren't that in the know about terms for classical productions. If you could please explain what concert master means. So concert master is the first violinist of the first violin section in the orchestra. So it's the, f the first or the person that's sitting right next to the conductor to the left, depending on what level of orchestra you're working with, there's different things you do. One of the things that every concertmaster will do is like they will come out and ask the oboist to play an A so that the rest of the orchestra can tune. Everybody, every concertmaster will do that. Now, as you uh, work with more of a professional orchestra and you get older, you have responsibility of bowing and marking all the parts of your string section. It could be just your violin section, or you can go as far as bowing and marking all the parts for the violins, the violas, the cellos, and the basses. And then, you know, they, they communicate with the rest of the musicians, whatever the conductor wants, and make sure that every musician is in communication with the conductor. That was your role when you played at Carnegie Hall. Yeah, Is there a story or a feeling or something very specific that you remember from that experience that just will always stick with you? Oh, yeah. So the first time I, I've been fortunate that I've played in Carnegie Hall many times now in the different halls as well, I, all of them, with chamber music and with orchestras. Uh, but I will never forget. I will always remember that first time that I got to play with Riona, with his orchestra as concertmaster. And I was, I think... 19? Oh um, no, 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 20, 20. I was in college and I was just so nervous because it's like this giant room, all the history, all the amazing people that have passed through and all the history of it. Mm -hmm. So I was just like overwhelmed and here I am, this little like immigrant, you know, <laughs> just like figuring out how to make her way as a professional violinist. And I, uh, I'm tiny, I'm under five feet. And I have to get out in this giant room and tune an orchestra in front of everybody. And I was just terrified. To me, it kind of feels like that living the American dream moment. <laughs> For sure. Right? It's like, yes. oh my gosh, people talk about this. And sometimes <laughs> it really happens. It's like, you made it. <laughs> have you seen many other concertmasters who are female? I think nowadays, like in the last maybe 20, 30 years, the majority of string players will be female. It's kind of normal to get a gig and play in an orchestra where there's like only one or two male violinists. 
So yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of us. There's a lot of women out there. Um, but concert masters, a lot are male. But it's not surprising to see a female concert master or a female um, leader in, in an orchestra setting. Well, I'd like to hear that. Do you overall in the classical side of the music industry, do you still see a gender bias that works in the symphony orchestra world? My experience when it comes to feeling any kind of friction in the workplace is mostly out of my, my kind of insecurity or like my nerves are mostly brought up, I guess, by being a woman and also by being an immigrant being a not European <laughs> um, or Asian uh, in the classical scene. Overall, I, I, I have been fortunate enough to have a lot of support and been surrounded in all my years of training by people that are very supportive and respectful. Sure, sometimes I'm the younger person in the ensemble and that also brings up a lot of like, oh, I, I have to prove myself and I don't want to say something uh, with the older more experienced folks. As a woman, I, I, I've seen a lot of uh, just respect amongst musicians in, in the classical scene. A number of years ago, I think it was the Boston Symphony Orchestra had uh, experimented with auditions to see if they were having any subconscious gender bias. For auditions, they put a curtain up in front of the candidates who were coming on stage to see if it would improve the the ratios. Well, what ended up happening is they said, oh, there really wasn't much of a difference in the ratios of people who were getting called back. So we're going to try something else because what they noticed was is that the judges could tell if it was a man or a woman based on the shoes. The shoes. Yes. <laughs> it's so funny that I was that was I recently did an audition for a for an orchestra and my mentor Vera Tishif was like just go in barefoot. So they don't know. <laughs> Go in barefoot. I wonder if it came from the study because what they ended up finding is that after all of the musicians auditioned barefoot, there was zero inclination of who was who and the um, number of women who were asked back increased tremendously. Wow, amazing. Which I thought was really fascinating. So maybe that's why you were told to take your shoes off. She was like, don't wear high heels, go barefoot. So, I mean, I, I think there there is for forever, there's going to be like a, a women have to, we have to work a little bit harder and we have to, um, you know, just be a little bit tougher and have tougher skin. And some things were just so systemic for so long. It's hard to move mountains. It takes time. Moving on to a little bit more about what you're doing now, you and your husband, uh, Jesse Elder, who, by the way, he's a pianist and a composer. You formed one and two. Can we talk a little bit about what one and two is all about? One and two is the two of us uh, coming together and finding our one spot in between everything that we have to give to each other where we can connect. So he's a jazz pianist and a composer, and I'm a classical, classically trained violinist with folk, Latin folk uh, skill set as well. We fell in love. We dated for a while and then we never played for like the first six months together. We just admired and respected each other in our own settings. And then we decided we wanted to put on a concert. One and two was what we created, which was a collaboration of 
different genre backgrounds. He will play classical music with me. I will play jazz with him. We will do um, our original compositions. Now, I, I think we've been together since 2012 as a duo. Now we kind of do everything, but we recreate everything we do. So we will, for example, not play a Mozart sonata, but we will kind of create our own cover of a Mozart sonata. And then we'll play some Charlie Parker, but not true to the bebop style, but more to um, what our flavor is, which is just kind of a mesh of classical and jazz and rock and free improvisation. I actually really enjoy your uh, collaboration uh, in Colombian folk with, uh, I think it's Nilko Andreas. Yeah. So uh, Nilko Andreas is this guitarist, class, also classically trained and also from Colombia. I believe he went to Manhattan School of Music and we met just by chance through a gig where he was playing as a soloist and, and I was in the orchestra that I was um, accompanying him. I was like, hey, you're from Colombia and so am I and you uh, sound amazing, so let's play together. Little by little, as I went more deeply into my classical training, I really, really, really deep down wanted to find a way to play Latin music, pay homage to my roots and elevate them. So I started wanting to play uh, Colombian music and singing, which is something I've never done before up until the last two years. I found Nilko and he was totally on board to play, you know, the music that we grew up hearing. Also making our own interpretations and arrangements of classical, but as well singing our hearts out and rocking out and showing our, you know, classical virtuosity as well as our, you know, folk raw kind of playing. We're going to have a link to that video in our show notes so everyone can check out how that is because I think there's a real fire to that that is exciting and it shows a different side of your violin work in the folk setting, obviously. You've also worked on a number of other projects and collaborations, including the Latin Grammy-winning all-female mariachi band Flor de Taluache. Yeah. And I was hoping that you could tell us how you got involved with them. And then eventually, I know you left, and it's just the story about how that evolved. One of my closest friends, um, who's this kind of hip-hop uh, violinist, uh, we went to high school together, which is um, La Guardia High School of Performing Arts in New York City, a public school that focuses on um, performing arts. She and I just became really good friends, especially after we got out of high school, we maintained touch. And while I was going through college, she started working with this all-female band, uh, all-female mariachi band. And I went to a couple of their shows and I was just totally like blown away with the power of like just seeing all females on stage. Have you ever seen that before? No, I had never seen that before. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and also in a mariachi setting, it's very, um, the Latino macho is very, oh, get out of the stage, you're a woman. Being a part of their their show and and being there with them was like wow this is amazing like they kick ass <laughs> this is incredible and I got in touch with my friend Luisa the hip hop violinist and I was like hey can you like connect me like if they want a violinist because I know they perform sometimes with like thirteen fifteen females and sometimes something as little as three people so I was like hey I would love to play with you guys and. She helped me get in touch with the woman, um, the two women that were um, kind of like the masterminds behind the whole thing, uh, Mireya Ramos and Shea Fiel. 
And I got in touch with them and they were totally like on board and they were super welcoming and they were like, yeah, come on over. Let's, let's play. It was very welcoming and awesome just to be with all females doing uh, the music that I listened when I was a little kid and wasn't classical and wasn't technically refined music. Felt very, very invigorating and liberating. And did you tour with them? I did tour with them a little bit. We went to California a couple of times and played in some uh, mariachi festivals. It was incredible. I mean, it was incredible because the majority of of the um, performing acts were male. And I think Flor de Toloache and there was another group, I don't remember their name. Um, I think they're based out of the West Coast, whereas Flor de Toloache is based out of the East Coast. That was the only female uh, groups that you would see. It was like, oh, okay. It felt almost like a, we don't belong here, but we're kicking ass and like we're badasses. <laughs> and like, this is great. All the women that are involved with Mariachi um, Flor de Toloache are all incredible, incredible instrumentalists and vocalists. As women, you know, like we've had to work really hard to earn our keep and get called for gigs. Yes. So being with them was like, yeah, we got this. With the audiences, did you have a lot of women in the audiences? I think the particular festivals that I, I was able to join, uh, that I joined them with, um, were, were a lot of families. A lot of family. Oh, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was. So it was just big. Like there was your abuelita and the tios and the tias and everybody. You started a family. So is that where you when you pulled back from touring? Right. Well. So I, I, I have continued touring, um, and mostly with my husband because we are a family, and so it's easy to put put together tra- uh, trips and concerts because we just need one hotel room, and our kids can come with us and. My mom usually joins. The reason I stopped playing with Mariachi Flor de Toloache was because it just didn't totally make sense with the times of the gigs and the financial um, reality. Mm-hmm. Was just like, okay, I can't totally commit to this at this moment. And at the same time, I was also very busy with jazz and rock and classical gigs. I mean, I was very, very busy before my baby. Then she was, you know, I was super big and couldn't really move anywhere, but I was still traveling like eight hours in the, in a car to go play a concert somewhere. <laughs> oh my gosh, that would hurt. It was insane. But the idea of, you know, being very big and playing a gig at 1am on a Monday night and then splitting whatever cover we made between, you know, 10 or 13 women was just not, it didn't make sense for me where I was. The guys don't get pregnant. It's easy for them to tour and sit in a car for eight hours and, and do these things. So the, the physical responsibility of being pregnant and then, of course, you know, post-pregnancy and all the responsibilities that come with feeding and caring for your child. Honestly, Blanca, that's, that's a universal voice that I hear there is, you know, how can we share that responsibility a little bit more as an industry? You know, how do yeah, we accommodate? Yeah. I think as we move more into virtual concerts and realms that may make things easier? Yeah. I mean, at least for me, it's, I I have my family in New York City with me and my mom, you know, I I want my kids to grow up and see that they can do whatever their passion is. So I've continued nurturing my passion, which is making music and performing. But I bring my kids with me everywhere. Usually my husband 
He's also a touring artist. He tours mainly with this band, Postmodern Jukebox, and he's a music director. And he'll be gone for like 50 days. <laughs> and he started doing that when our first baby was three months old. So when you bring that up, the point that as a woman, like it's a responsibility to, to be there and you can't just continue. It's a bigger transformation for women, I think. He can travel and he can tour. He doesn't have to bring the kids with him. Whereas I, I do. I bring them with me and I have my mom's support. And that's a great bonding experience, having the music, being able to travel and be with your family and your mom's case with your child and your grandchildren. I mean, overall, that's, those are quite some stories to have, you know, at the end of the day. This was really kind of a cool thing. It might have been hard, uh, <laughs> but certainly an, a unique experience that I think your children are, are always going to cherish. Mm-hmm. I hope so. I hope they're not like, Bob, you're crazy. <laughs> no, I think they will. I think they will. Uh, we're getting toward the end of our conversation. And one of the questions that I wanted to ask before we wrap up is if you have any tips for Latinas or, you know, any immigrants coming to the United States who are interested in pursuing a career in music on the stage or behind or behind the scenes? Any tips? I think a big thing is finding a community, finding a support group, finding people that are like you. So if you're if you're an immigrant, not being scared of finding other immigrants or finding people who have um, immigrant families or immigrant parents or friends. And also the other tip that I think relevant for everybody um, is to share your goals and your dreams with as many people as you can and to not be shy or um, scared to let people mm-hmm. know that you have dreams and you have aspirations. Because one, I believe by talking about it, you are giving a lot of power to your word and a lot of power to these dreams and goals. But two, um, just sharing it with your community will bring about support. You never know who's listening and you never know how somebody may be of assistance and support for you or how you can do that for other people. And that alone is being brave. Yes. Expressing yourself, inserting yourself and saying, I want to be a part of this community and assuming it's a healthy community. Mm -hmm. The beauty of that is that when you do that in truth and bravery is that you attract like-minded people. Thank you, Blanca, for coming to the show. It was such a delight speaking with you. I can't wait to continue to follow your career. All of your um, contact information will be in our show notes at backstagechats.com. And of course, little video clips of you playing so that people can see that and and listen to your music. I would just like to say to our audience that we love interviewing women like Blanca Cecilia Gonzalez. And the reason why is because their stories remind us to be dreamers, to be rule breakers, and to unleash our inner rock stars. Thank you, Blanca. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you. It's a wrap. Woo! You can help Horizon Music Foundation uplift female trailblazers and rising stars in music. Go to backstagechats.com and click the donate button. 
For as little as $10 per month, your recurring monthly gift provides the education, experience, and role modeling our next generation of female music makers need to be successful in the music industry. Visit BackstageChats.com and click Donate. Join our tribe of dreamers, rule breakers, and rock stars. This podcast is a production of Horizon Music Foundation and made possible by the support of patrons like you. Help us continue to uplift and celebrate women in music by donating to the cause. Visit BackstageChats.com and click the Donate button today. Last but certainly not least, please give a round of applause for the team behind the scenes, including social media coordinator Eleanor Bush, intern Claudia Dortman, website hosting and maintenance service Elevera Agency, and music provider Pond5.com. <laughs>